are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 512. For me, it's a couple days ago. For you, it's Friday, so TGIF for you guys out there that really look forward to the weekend. I started my weekend early, but I did pre-record this show, and of course I left you a video for yesterday, actually two videos for yesterday. Hopefully you enjoyed them, uh, but today is Friday, at least for you, so that means we're going to do call-in Friday, so I have about 11 really great calls uh, lined up, some really interesting stuff, some things challenging me on some a few things, and that's always great. And remember, if you'd like to be featured on a show on Friday like this, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, and uh, you know, join us here. Leave your message in two minutes or less, be concise to the point, and if I can do it, I'll get it on the show. Uh, real quick before we do our normal housekeeping, I do have to remind you of one thing because I keep getting some emails from people from time to time that seem irritated that I haven't answered them. In the beginning, and if you're listening to old shows, you might hear me say things like, I answer every single one of my own emails. I now do my best effort to answer as many emails as I can. I get over a thousand a day. I will not answer every email I get anymore. It's impossible. If your email is requesting tech support or something like that, you don't get an answer. That means you need to resend it. But if it's just an email because you wanted to tell me something or ask me a question or say hey and you didn't hear back, don't feel scorned. It's just no longer physically possible for me to answer every email anymore. I did my best for over two years, and I've come into touch with my limitations now. Uh, but I do appreciate them, and I do read them all. Know that. If you send me an email, I'm going to read it, and I will read every bit of it. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping so we can get into today's show, because it is going to be a great one, because it's about you, because it's your calls. Uh, sponsor of the day number one is our housekeeping segment begins, Sawtooth Tactical. If you want stuff... To live, live the tactical lifestyle, check out Sawtooth Tactical, Magpul Magazines, uh, Maxpedition Bags, and everything else you can think of for that tactical side of life. Great knives, great blades over there to t check out. All kinds of great stuff, and they really like to take care of our audience. You order from them, you tell them you found them at the Survival Podcast, and uh, they will always throw in a little extra goodie, usually some paracord or something like that. It's nice that they do anything, and they do it because they like dealing with our audience, and they appreciate the support you guys give them. Next up today is the Lifesaver 4000 from Ready-Made Resources. The Lifesaver 4000 is portable, on-demand, clean water anywhere that you go, making virtually any water safe to drink, filtering down to .015 microns. Uh, using pressure to push through that filtered uh, system with a little pump on the bottle, uh, and able to make sure you have pure water to drink wherever you go. So make sure you check out the Lifesaver 4000, and check out its big brother, the Lifesaver Jerry Can, if you want to be able to purify more water. Those things are really awesome. I've got one, and uh, it, it's one of the best uh, investments we have in our home. Next up, check out uh, our social media stuff. I just put some YouTube stuff up. Make sure you're a YouTube subscriber. You'll know before anybody else when I publish that way. Uh, join us on Facebook. Uh, get in touch with us on Twitter. I need your help on Twitter, folks. Folks that are using Twitter, uh, please consider retweeting uh, our episodes. That will help spread the word about the Survival Podcast. 
Uh, next up, want to remind you, special show coming up, episode 550. I'm getting some great calls. Please call in. Tell us what you, what the Survival Podcast and what prepping has meant to you and how it's changed your life over the past year or two. Uh, listen to our one-year anniversary show to get a feel for that type of show. But I want 550 to be, I, I don't know, I hope it's a two-hour long show, folks. I, as many as you call in, that's how many people are going to be on the show. It's just going to be you, everybody in the audience saying uh, what, what it's been like to change their paradigm and uh, really start to focus on what matters and make a difference for themselves and their families. Um, also want to remind you real quick about the uh, Member Support Brigade. Join the Members Brigade, yada, yada, re uh, free stuff, great ebooks, discounts, wonderful, right? Uh, but I am running a special that starts this morning. Uh, you can use the discount code BOL. You should use them in lowercase again, Bravo. Oscar Lima, B-O-L, is in Bug Out Location, where I'm at, setting a deer feeder up right now as you listen to this. And uh, you will get your first year for $35. With that, housekeeping knocked out in under five minutes flat, including the intro and a bunch of other stuff. So let's get on to taking your calls. This first caller is going to challenge me on something. I want you to listen carefully to what this guy says and see if you think he and I really disagree, because I don't think we do. I think we're playing semantics here with terminology. And I'll come back and give my answer. But give this guy a close listen. Sounds like a really smart guy, and he sounds like he's saying the same thing. And uh, you'll note one thing he says, maybe why he thinks we disagree. My name is Eric. I've been a member of a different survival group for almost 10 years now. I was evaluating your assessment of bugging in or bugging out, and you're limiting to just those two issues. I wanted to discuss my thoughts before I listened to your remarks. And it's just this simple, and there is a third option, which is a fallback, and that you're bugging out. is not a reflection of not standing and fighting, but choosing the right opportunity and coming to the decision that you must leave. When that event transpires, as far as I'm concerned, is when your neighbor's kid shows up and he's hungry. That's the time that you need to take your supplies and fall back to a position that you're pre-prepared that is defensible and affords less of an opportunity for those who are wandering around with preparation to become violent. Thank you. Bye. So I'm not sure there, but I think what the gentleman said is he wanted to give this statement before listening to comments. So it may be that he read the show notes uh, where I was talking about making this decision and hadn't actually listened to the audio yet. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but that's maybe what I got of it. Because what he just described sounded exactly like what I called bugging out. Uh, you get to a point where your survival is enhanced by leaving you go somewhere else. Um, now, he may be saying that bugging out is simply leaving and falling back is having a place to go. Um, if we, if he is, and, and sir, if, you, if, you, if I misunderstand you, you call back in, you let me know. Um, but, for instance, we have our place up in the sticks in Arkansas. If our neighborhood got to a point where we believe that our ability to survive here was compromised, we would pick up and we would we would fall back to that bug out location. And I would call that bugging out, and you'd call it falling back. Um, you may also be talking about, in some instances, a person that has maybe a large rural property may have another location on their own property that's further back to fall back to. Um, then we're really playing semantics because you're not leaving your property. Um, But what I get out of this is what you're saying is, hey, there's a point in time where you got to go, and it's not about whether you're standing and fighting or, or turn and tail and run. It's about giving yourself the opportunity to uh, 
to be able to, to do the best you can under whatever circumstances come. I think if you listen to the episode versus just reading the show notes from that particular uh, thing that you've called in about, you'll find out you and I pretty much agree on this. I'm hearing a little bit of the, uh, how do I put this without sounding like I'm, I'm putting you down because I'm not. I'm hearing a little bit of the only end of the world scenario type thing going on there in, in, in your, your psychology, just a little bit. I could be wrong, but I, I'm hearing that. Uh, I'm hearing the, the whole point of this is always simply because someday the end is going to come. And uh, whatever that may be, whether it's, you know, collapse of the economy or uh, biblical in nature or whatever it is, there's a, there's a lot of people out in our community that that's what they prepare for, the big one, and the hell with everything else. Well, um, we do try to focus on things here where you might be bugging out. It might have nothing to do with fighting. Again, if you listen to the episode, you'll hear things like if um, you live in a coastal region and a large hurricane is coming, you leave. Now, if you mean bug out means to go anywhere, random place, and fall back means to go to a prepared location, we're definitely playing semantics. I would call both of those bugging out. One is better than the other. It's a much better bug out if you have a place to go in a location prepared. But I think uh, when you said there's a third option, there, there really isn't. There, there, there's no way there's a third option if we're simplifying this. You're either staying or you're not. You're either staying or you're going to go, like the Clash song, right? Do I stay or do I go? And, and that's it. Now, where you end up is highly dependent on the situation. Not everybody has the, the, the financial or physical capability to set up a true fallback bug-out location. Some have to go with, you know, doubling up with a, with a relative. Some have to go with, I really don't know, but I know I can't stay here. Because even if I don't have a place to go, if... For instance, if you lived in New Orleans uh, a couple days before Katrina made landfall, whether you had somewhere to go or not, you needed to get out. If you were living in Galveston right before I kicked, you needed to get the hell out. If you had to go sleep at a truck stop in your car, you got to get out of there. And that's not about the end of the world. That's about the end of the world as we know it for you in your per current location. Uh, and that usually makes the decision pretty easy. Uh, but to me, it always comes down to the same thing. And as far as your comment about your neighbor... Let me put it to you this way. If we were in a situation where people in my neighborhood were hungry, but I knew, I absolutely knew that situation was temporary. Say we had a big storm and relief efforts were on the way and people were coming in, but the stores were closed for whatever reason and we we're going to be that way for a week or two, I'm not going to leave my neighbor. I'm going to feed my neighbor. Now, if we get into the big thing where it's, it's about long-term survival, then there's only so much you can do to help people. But I'm not running away just because my neighbor shows up hungry. And I think we need to reevaluate that mentality. There is a time for that exact mentality. It is not in the aftermath of a single hurricane where you know relief efforts are on the way or anything similar to that. It is not after a forest fire reaches through a town and, and, and levels it, but it's only that area. It is not in a situation like Greensburg, Kansas, where a town's been wiped out by a tornado. That's a time that everybody needs to pull the hell together, and this isolationist attitude can really be a problem. Again, if I'm misreading you, please call back in. I'll be happy to uh, to get you on another show and let you say your piece. Uh, that was a good one, though. I like it, and I like the thoughts that it provokes. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. Love the show. Uh, my question is a 401k question. Uh, my employer matches 100% of my contribution up to $50 per week. Uh, if I contribute the whole 50 soon, my 401k is going to be a large part of my assets and my savings. 
but I, I feel like I'm leaving money on the table if I don't contribute the whole 50. Uh, what's your What's your suggestion? Thanks. Well, that's an interesting question. Let's start out with the standard, you know, financial advisor advice. If your employer matches, then you should contribute right up to the match because you should maximize that because it's a hundred percent return on your money. Um, I'm inclined to sort of, kind of, maybe agree with that. Here's what I have to, if I had you on the phone live, what I would say is, well, that's $200 a month roughly. It's actually a little more because there's 4.34 weeks in a month, folks. Uh, most people that have never taken accounting courses uh, don't know that. But there's not four weeks in a month. There's 4.34 weeks in a month. Uh, so it averages out, let's call it 200 bucks anyway, instead of being an accountant in a bean counter because I haven't done that for a long time. Um If I said, how much money can you save a month, and you told me I can save $400 a month, and I want to split half of it between a retirement-style account and half of it between uh, a more accessible uh, money, um, I would say no problem if you can save at least $400 a month into true investment savings. If you tell me $200 a month maxes out what I can do, now we got to think about it a little bit more, but I'm still not completely off getting a 100% return because this is something you could do to be very safe with this investment. Select a very safe investment vehicle within the 401k like a money market account. And even in this volatile time when we don't know if the, what the market's going to do in the next year or two, and, and I don't really feel comfortable in the stock market, you basically are holding what amounts to a low interest yield checking account, but you're making a 100% return. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I've said before it's very difficult to get money out of a Roth 401k, even the principal investment. I have been proven wrong on that multiple times by people sending me information that shows me the worksheet and that if you do withdraw money from a Roth 401k or IRA, that all of the money that you've contributed can be withdrawn without interest and penalty. Uh, it's uh, it, There's people that even do it for a living that do it wrong. It's about how you fill out the worksheet. And as long as you fill out the worksheet right, and I've evaluated this from multiple people on both sides of the fence, and the people that say you can get the money out are right. Here's what I don't know. If you're doing it with employer contributions, can you get the employer's contribution out too? If you can, if you can, then I'm a lot more inclined to, if you have the option to do a Roth 401k with your employer, To do a Roth 401k, go very safe, uh, either very safe bonds or very, just go with money market account inside that 401k. Take the Roth option. Uh, do as much as you're comfortable with. And know that if you get to a point where you want to move some or a portion of that money out of there, that you can do it at a later date after you switch jobs, roll part of it to an IRA, roll part of it out, uh, do what you, what you will with it. But I don't know if you can count on getting the employer's contributions. That's one of them little bugaboos. Some of you guys that straighten me out on this Roth issue, let me know. Send me an email. Let me know. If you have a Roth 401k and you're withdrawing money from it and you're doing it under the guidelines the IRS has established, filling out the worksheet where you can do it without interest and penalty. And if you think you can't do it, don't answer this because you're wrong. You need to go figure out where you're wrong because I was sure you were right and I was proven that I was wrong. So those of you that know you can do that and you've done it for people, let me know what happens if a portion of that money is employer contributed because it's not interest, but it is profit. But is it profit or is it compensation? And since it's a Roth and the employer matches, do you pay tax on it before it goes in there? 
I would imagine that you do. I'm not sure. Uh, someone straighten that out for me and let me know. Maybe a Roth 401k cannot have an employer contribution. This is a new one for me. But hopefully I've given you some things to think about, some loopholes to work. And if it is a standard uh, 401k without a Roth option and the money is indeed locked up, I would tend toward at least 25% of whatever you can save a month, no matter how much the employer contributes, at least 25% of your savings should go into a bank account or somewhere you can get your hands on it uh, at a minimum. Otherwise, see if you can work one of those loopholes. And those that know about the uh, the Roth option with employer contributions, let me know. Let's take another question. That's an awesome one because I don't know the answer. Hi, Jack. I love your podcast. My name is Andy, and I'm in Savannah, Georgia. And I was just listening a while ago, and I listened to you uh, take a call in from a guy who was wondering about saving water from his air conditioner. Um, and I just, it was quite ironic because I've been doing that um, at, at my home. And um, I just want you to know, I put it, you had recommended to him that it was completely okay for drinking water. And I just wanted to, know, to let you know, and him, um, I drank some of it, and it was weird. Um, I don't know why, and if you could um, cue me in as to why that water may have been good or, or not good, because uh, there was just a funky taste to it. I've been watering my plants and everything with it, and it's been fine But for them, but uh, there's just something going on as far as drinking it. So if you can um, let me know somewhere about that, that'd be great. Appreciate what you do. Thank you. Well, first of all, good question, but let's go back and let's get what I said 100% right so nobody goes out and gets themselves sick. What I said is the water itself off a condenser uh, of an AC in it should theoretically be 100% pure and safe to drink, and that's true. But what I also said was there's no guarantee about what is on the fins of the air conditioner or anything that water comes into contact with and that you can probably get sick from... Uh, you know, any kind of infectious agent that's, that's grown on that, uh, condenser and has fallen off with the water. So that was my concern with drinking it, that, that the water, the, the process by which the water is being made should make it okay. If you went out there and sanitized the damn thing every day and then collected water from it, you should be okay. But if you just do it, you can get sick. And some people wrote in and told me just how sick you can get. There's some very nasty bacteria uh, that can grow in those environments that can make people extremely sick. So water itself safe. The environment the water's come into contact with could make it not safe. Now, here's your, your question, though, about why does it taste like that? Um, I don't know the exact chemical reasons for it, but I can tell you that if you've ever gone out, practiced your wilderness skills, and built a solar still, it has the same taste. And it has to do with the water being pulled out of the atmosphere and it being pure water. It has no real oxygen. It has, you know, the hydrogen oxygen content, obviously, but it has no, no aeration, no oxygen or, or, uh, uh, you know, suspended in it as a gas. It has no nitrogen suspended in it as a gas. You collect rainwater. It comes down through the air. And, uh, it, when it does that, it, it picks up things. When you get water out of a stream, it's been rolling. In a lake, it's been moving and the wind has been lapping. It comes out of the faucet. It, it's got, um, and the other thing that, that almost any other source of water has is some level of um, something additional in it, whether it's a, a little bit of a salt or a little bit of a mineral and things like that. When you pull water directly from the atmosphere, 
and it hasn't been oxygenated or it hasn't been uh, nothing's occurred to it. it it tastes flat that's the taste you're you're, you're tasting and we have a tendency to think well all water's flat because we think flat we think like soda or beer going flat i don't mean it that way it's it's flat as in it's completely flat it's got nothing going on in it that's and you're not accustomed to it so that's that's why it has that taste so i bet you if you go out and make yourself a little solar still in the backyard which is a good project for everybody to do Catch some water in that solar still and taste that water. You'll understand exactly what this guy's talking about, and uh, you'll see what it is. Again, water from an AC compressor, the water itself is safe, but the, the environment it's created on, what it's condensing on, can transmit some really nasty stuff. So that's a, that's a situation where that water is best used for irrigation and things like that, because it not only doesn't taste good, it could have some real nasty stuff in it. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Alan, stationed at Fort Hood. I uh, listened to your show when I was in Iraq. Loved it. A uh, couple questions. I, I heard that you had talked about biogasifiers. Uh, if you could, do me a favor. Uh, let me know some more about it, uh, what you think, and what uh, companies make the best ones also. Uh, my second question, aquaponics. Is, is there anything there? Let me know what you think. Thank you. Bye. Well, uh, you got two questions in. You did it quick, so I'll honor two questions. Uh, number one on biogas. Uh, what, what he's really talking about isn't so much biogas. I think that's not the right term, uh, but more of a wood gasification process. Maybe that is considered biogas. I guess that would be because it's a biological source of the gas. But this is a system where you take basically uh, wood and use it to heat other wood, and then the, the wood that's being heated instead of combusting gases. And as it creates an off-gas, that gas is harvested and used to do something like, let's say, run a generator to produce electricity. This is a new technology to me. I, I really am just beginning to understand its, its, its validity, especially for use on a small scale and, and how valuable it can really be. It's something that's kind of in my long-term planning at, at, at my uh, bug-out location, soon to be my primary residence, honestly, uh, with maybe generating a few kilowatts of power a day with a small system and using that as a supplement uh, to a solar and wind hybrid system. And I think that together you can get real close to true energy independence now. I can't recommend a variety or a brand, and I can't talk really in-depth about this technology yet. Uh, other than to say that I'm highly encouraged, if somebody really knows this technology well, is involved with this technology, I want to move more and more toward some interviews. I'd like to do at least one interview a week on the show going forward, and uh, you know, maybe starting that next week. By the way, I got a, a really great interview coming up next week. I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. I'll tell you on Monday, um, but a really awesome one coming up that'll be airing Friday next week. Um, but I would love to have someone on that can talk more in depth about wood gasification and biogasification in general and uh, the options that are out there, the costs involved, uh, what you need as far as a fuel source, how much you can do. Let's say if you had five acres of land, you were cosmosing trees and running them through a, a chipper and you're using wood chips as your, uh, you know, your, your system. How much could you produce a year? That type of thing. I'd love to know. Um, your next question uh, on aquaponics. Yeah, there's plenty there. In fact, what you really want to do, and it's, I know you called in before I did the show, but uh, earlier this week I did episode 510, I think it was Tuesday, and it was all about aquaponics. So I'm not going to say a lot about aquaponics in response to this, other than, yeah, you bet there's something there. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention was why aquaponics is so valuable. Uh, when you're growing protein sources like fish, when you're growing an animal in a weightless environment, uh, in, in other words, in water, 
Um, it takes less energy input to put on biomass. So what that means is fish are a better converter of plant matter or other protein sources to human protein than a rabbit or a chicken or a duck or a cow because they can use less energy input to give more protein output. So that's a big reason that aquaponics is powerful, along with everything else. Again, check out episode 510. Uh, just a couple days ago I did that show, and uh, I think you'll get a lot more of an overview of aquaponics from that. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is John from Indiana. Hey, love the show. I have a, a topic or a question uh, that I'd certainly like some advice or your feedback on. To, to keep it down to the basics, I recently moved into the country. I have electric power and uh, propane gas, and I'm looking to buy a backup generator for an alternative source of power in the house. I travel some for work, and when I'm out of town, I want to make sure my wife and kids are set up, uh, and I'm, I'm dependent somewhat on a sump pump for working in the basement uh, to keep water out. So power and having that power is essential. I have priced out a propane-powered standby generator that would automatically kick on and work, uh, but the price would, would run anywhere between uh, six and $7,000, according to the electrician, to give the power that I needed to run the sump pumps, refrigerator, freezer, and other basic things. My, my question is, uh, am I better off to go with a propane power generator? Uh, and, and as background, I in the tank and back, I have basically a year's worth of propane on hand at any time. Um, or in the event of an energy crisis or a major shit hit the fan, would I be better off with a renewable source of energy, such as solar uh, and or wind, to provide that sort of backup power that would be needed? So I'm, I'm, I'm almost set, I've almost pulled the trigger on this propane power generator, sort of the renewable energy concept and, and um Looking at it from that standpoint in a true energy crisis uh, also has some appeal as well. So I'd appreciate any advice and thoughts you may have. Take care. Um, I'll tell you what. I like the direction you're leaning. In the end, you're going to have to make your own decision here. But let me give you some of the some of my thoughts on what you decided. When you first started going on about being gone and leave, leaving it behind for your wife and kids, I thought, well, they better know how to work everything. So having an automated system set up was going to be my recommendation, which you went right into. It sounds like you're going into a pretty heavy system if it's a $7,000 installation cost. But it's a lot of peace of mind. You know, My next thing would have been, well, how much fuel do you have? Well, if you have a year's supply of propane, and uh, if you could bring even a second tank in, it has almost a limitless storage life. Um, you know, Now you've got two years. And even if you're using something for heat and all, you know, it, it could be stretched in, in a long-term uh, bad time. And I would say keep those tanks very, very full. And that's kind of why I'm, you know, hitting on maybe you bring a second tank in and absorb that expense as well. Um, now let's look at wind and solar. The thing about wind and solar is you're not going to get a lot for $7,000. You're definitely not going to get enough to do what a propane generator for $7,000 uh, with all the setup and everything will do for you as far as running critical systems in your home. You can probably run uh, just about everything you really would ever need to, including enough to stay comfortable uh, with the system you're looking at. But if I look at long-term energy independence and what I can do now, the next thing that I can do is I can come in and I can put in a battery backup system. 
and I can make sure that that generator not only can charge the house, but can keep a backup battery system, and the grid itself could charge this battery backup system and keep it ready at all times. So now I could run, let's say, my less intensive energy with my battery backup. Now I can come in with wind and solar, and I can run that to my batteries and become a ba battery backup you know, sometime in the future. And in the event of a grid loss, I've now got everything. I've got wind, I've got solar, I've got battery backup, and I've got power generation. So as a long-term plan, I think that makes sense. Now let's just say you're, gonna, you, you're saying, hey man, I can only do one of these things. I don't have that long-term plan to add solar on top of this. Battery backup is expensive. And it's, you know, when you look at a, a solar system, a good solar system uh, that has a battery capability, the uh, batteries are a huge expense. Uh, of the total system cost. So you said I just want to do whatever I can with $7,000 I have. I love your plan. And I'll tell you why. Sure, the end of the world as we know it comes. Yeah, you have a limit to how long you can have electricity, but you sure have a long limit of electricity with that with that type of a of a reserve. In 99% of disasters, the generator kicks on, your life goes on, And it's an inconvenience versus a disaster for you. And if this happens while you're away during a time in the winter where it's really cold out or the time in the summer where it's really hot out, your family's going to be better off. You're going to feel better about it. And as long as you're not putting this on a MasterCard, as long as you've got your finances squared away, I think this is a good decision for you. It sounds like you're 90% there already. So if you're looking for me to say there's no big gotchas in it, there's no big gotchas in it. That said... There, it doesn't have the complete independence that if you put in a really large-scale solar system or a large-scale wind system, what, what that could do for you. But everything's a trade-off, and the wind-solar stuff is going to cost more and dollar-for-dollar dollar do far less as far as making things in your house run. So seven grand, it's only going to be expensive once. But do consider a second propane tank, and here's why. You, most people with large propane tanks don't like to get them filled up every three months or something like that. They like to, you know, get them filled up when they're almost empty. So it's maybe a couple times a year or once a year or once every nine months or something like that. The problem with that is, is if the disaster occurs when the tank's low and disaster affects the supply uh, coming to you, now you got a problem. So it makes a hell of a lot more sense to put in a reserve tank. Even if what you do is you put in a smaller reserve tank, just so there's a, you know, you have the ability to fill up, uh, with long durations in between, but still keep a significant amount on hand. So you might want to budget for a second tank. Um, again, considering the fact that if you're using that propane right now for like heating and you got a year supply, it won't be a year supply when used for heating and for running a generator. It's going to drastically reduce that. You also want to make sure with your contractor you talk a lot about what is the propane usage of the generator under a half load and under a three-quarter load. Forget about full load because you really aren't going to be doing that if the guy sets it up right for you. But good plan. I like it, and I like the fact that it's automated to the point where if the lights go out at 2 a.m., you're not going to get a phone call from your wife in a hotel room, and you're trying to tell her how to hook things up. Uh, it's probably the best thing you can do under your circumstances to have something like that. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Emily in Plano, Texas. My husband and I are planning to move out into a more, more rural area and do homesteading in about three years. 
and we want to be totally off the grid and not have central heat and air, so we were planning on having an Earthship built, except that I recently heard you comment uh, to somebody else and say to think real hard because it can take a long time to build an Earthship. Well, I was wondering if, number one, if that was true for a small, how we were just um, planning on about twelve to 1,500 square feet, and we were not planning on building it ourselves. We were going to have a crew. So, number one, if, if, if those are the circumstances, is it still going to take a really long time or just a few months in that case? And the other question is, if it is still going to take more than several months to build an airship, um, what, what, would you rec- what kind of housing would you recommend for this area in North Texas if a person does not want to have central heat and air? I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for your show. Bye. Well, first of all, if you have your heart set on it, don't let my opinion steer you away from something you really want. But let's be realistic, too. You said small, 1,200 to 1,500 square feet. That's probably big for a lot of earthships. Uh, most people that go with that type of lifestyle are minimalists to begin with, and they'd be happy with 1,200 square feet under roof. And most people that would want a larger one actually start out with smaller than that and keep expanding it over time. My comment of 6 to 13 years was simply because I watched a documentary of all these people out in the desert that built these things, and a lot of them did get help from each other. The kind of community did this stuff. But it's not that it has to take that long. It certainly doesn't. I also watched the, the guy that was the, the featured dude, the guy that, I can't remember his name, but he was the guy that made the first Earthship ever. Uh, him and a crew went over to India, and they built a little bitty one. I mean, this thing was like 300 square feet maybe, and they built it in 18 days. Uh, but they had like a half a village show up and help. To get an idea, like I said, go get one tire and pack it with dirt. And then design the home and figure out how many tires you're going to have to pack with dirt and then figure out how many people you're going to have and think about brakes and how hard it is to work out there in the sun. And that's just the tire walls. And then there's everything else that goes with it. So if you really want one, it can be done. There's actually, you might want to check into this. There is a community up around Denton, Texas. I can't remember the name of it, but I ended up having to go there one time uh, that is built of subterranean homes, and most of them are Earthship or Earthship-like. Uh, and since you're in this area, that might be a good place for you to go take a tour. I know a lot of those people are really proud of what they've done. What they've done, they'd be happy to show you around. There's certain rules about times that visitors can come in, and no noise after certain hours and all. But again, this is up around Denton, Texas. Now let's talk about because you said what are some alternatives? Well, an earth berm home is a definite alternative because you can go with simple concrete walls and then. You know, build that subterranean somewhat and then cover over it. The problem you have around Dallas, Texas, with anything that has subterranean use is that we have clay soil. And that's why we don't have a lot of basements around here. So you're going to have to deal with that and you're going to have to talk to someone that's done it that's going to help you with it. And that's why I'm recommending that you go up and talk to these people in Denton because they've done it. And I think that would be a great resource for you before you make a decision. What I saw up there reminded me of Earthships, but they weren't really Earth berms because Earth berms kind of look like a basic normal house, and except they're covered over on half the house. And they weren't really Earthships because I didn't see a lot of stuff done with tires, though some were. And whatever they're doing, it was more like a concrete in-ground cave house. And they were very, very cool. And uh, they also were quite well um, climate controlled that way. I don't know that I would ever try to go 100% without air conditioning in Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
our August heat humidity combination, even with an earth berm house, I'm skeptical of being completely comfortable at all times in my home, but a very small uh, AC system would probably do way more than you would ever need. It may not be necessary, but you might want to plan for the ability to add it if it doesn't work out. Because it sucks to sleep with sweat, you know, just sweat on you. That's one of the things I don't like to do. I can be cold. Sweaty bugs me. Uh, but that's a personal thing. That's up to you. But you want to look at some alternatives, definitely. The other thing you want to look at is when you're buying property, you need to look very hard at local and county zoning because there are places where it's all but impossible to build these types of construction because county governments are stupid and they think they're protecting you. And the reality is that an earth ship, an earth berm home, these kind of what I call cave houses, all of these are probably the safest thing you could be living in in Dallas-Fort Worth where we have about a billion tornadoes a year. And, and the fact that no one around here has a, a freaking uh, cellar is nuts. And uh, I, I just I, I can't tell you like anything about the local zoning around here because I haven't looked into it because it hasn't affected me. I can just tell you that I've read a lot about people that have built these types of constructions and some of the headaches they've gone through to get permits and whatnot. Getting out as far and unincorporated as possible is probably the best way to go to have the freedom that you're looking for. But again, don't let my pessimism spoil what you have your heart set on. But I do want you to realize, you know, the number of your crew is going to be important. How much work they're going to do and what they're going to cost to get out there is going to be important. And go, anybody considering Earthship design, go and um, fill one tire. It will surprise you how much work it really is. Uh, let's go ahead. Uh, oh, last time I mentioned this, somebody had sent me a couple different compactors. And uh, one of them was like this big one like uh, groundskeepers use when they're uh, putting in, like let's say, uh, a stone walkway or something where they pack gravel with it. And that ain't going to work because the hard part of getting the dirt in the tire isn't packing it down. It's packing it in the sides. But a couple people sent me some stuff that you can get on eBay. looks almost like a pogo stick without the T-handle, and it's hydraulic. It hooks up to an air compressor or, or somewhere electric, somewhere air compressor driven. And they have like a small... T thing on the bottom that, that acted as a compactor, those might work. But the fact that I've never seen any Earthship construction done with them tells me they might not as well. So best I can do with that one, let's take another question. Actually, you know what, we're actually going to be taking two callers right now. Uh, two people called in with such a similar question, I decided I'll stack the two callers, you'll hear one than the other, and then I'll answer them both at the same time. Hey, Jack, this is Steve in Arkansas. I'm a disabled vet, I'm getting myself back into shape, and I had a question that came up in my mind, and I hope you can help me answer. How fit do I need to be on the continuum of infantry soldier to couch potato? Where do I need to fall to be in a good place to help me and my family survive? Thanks for letting me ask the question. Love the show, and I'll be listening on iTunes. Hey, Jack. This isn't really a question, just a suggestion. Um, as uh, Eric Shelton of the Handgun Podcast talks about, um, that we're more likely to die from Big Macs than we are from a shooting. Um, doesn't mean you don't be prepared and don't learn how to use firearms and own firearms but that sometimes we can get tunnel vision on where we put our focus. I'm a short, stocky guy, and the weight was starting to gain on me in my mid-30s, so I recently started the Couch to 5K program, which for those who have never heard of it, it's a 
program to have you walk and run or jog and kind of get yourself up to doing a good 30, 45-minute run for about 5K. Well, I've been doing the program for five weeks, and the other week I was in Ocean City, Maryland, and just kind of decided to do it along the beach. And I actually wound up, keep on, kept on going all the way down to the pier. When I got back and calculated it, I'd actually run basically nearly two miles. And this is something I would not have been capable of doing just five, six weeks ago before I started the program. So for those who kind of feel that weight and are kind of thinking, you know, hey, maybe I need to actually be in enough shape to bug out if I had to, if I had to walk from my car, you know, this is a pretty good program that I think is accessible to most people. Um, and even uh, suggestions for those who may not be able to run or jog to do a walk slash power walk um, to go through the program the first time and, you know, helps build your cardio, help you lose weight, and it's a good preparedness to be able to walk or run, you know, a couple miles. Just a thought for all the listeners out there. Okay, ain't it awesome when, like, one person calls in and asks a question and another person calls in and gives the answer? And I'll tell you what, there were two calls... Uh, two people called in in between those two people. They almost came in back-to-back -back like I've seen them do before, but this audience is in sync with each other. Let's start out with uh, my thoughts on the first question. How fit is fit enough? Well, um, that's personal, but it also is, you know, there's also a certain amount of uh, non-personal. There, there is a point at which you're not fit enough. When your health is in danger, you're not fit enough. When you can't, you know, get up and, and, and walk a couple miles without sucking wind, Uh, you're not fit enough. I believe if you can't walk at least a couple miles carrying a little bit of a load, it's a 20 pounds or so, uh, and, and do it kind of off, off track, so to speak, up and down hills and stuff, if you can't pull that off, you're definitely not fit enough. Um, I think that worrying too much about the way we look is something too many people put too much stock in. I get some comments from you guys time to time about my beer gut. My response has always been, you know what, come up to Colorado, go elk hunting with me, and about three days into it, we'll see how fit we both are. And some of you guys are really, really fit, and you'd have no problem with that. But I know a lot of people that, that maybe look fitter than I am aren't quite as fit as they think they are. Um, but I'm a big believer in walking Uh, is, a, is a primary means of exercise, but not walking slowly on flats. I like to get some speed into it. I like to bear some weight with it, and I really like to get off the, the pavement and onto uh, trails and in the woods, and I like to find as many hills as I can. My belief is one of the best exercises in the world is walking steep hills, especially on things that are either gravel or dirt. And here's why, and I think most people don't realize this, even when you're going down a hill like that, you're burning more calories than walking even faster on a flat surface. Because when you step on gravel and your foot is unstable, Uh, your body has to make thousands of little adjustments with all the muscles in your back, your chest, your, your, your legs, your ankles, um, your, your torso, your abdomen to, to maintain balance. And it's, it's, it's not something you think about. It's completely subconscious, but every step is different and it works a different muscle group and it's a great full body exercise. So I'm big into it. Couch to 5K that the second caller called in and talked about. I am not real familiar with that. I will tell you that I'm not a big advocate of running. After spending a few years in the military, 
Uh, I left like what I saw many people leave. There's two exercises I don't have a real fondness for anymore. One is push-ups, and I don't like push-ups because of how many damaged rotator cuffs that I saw come out of the, the Army and how many rotator cuff surgeries I've seen, and I blame push-ups for that. I have rotator cuff damage. I refuse to have surgery on it. I never drew disability against it, but mine was more from injuries uh, on, on parachute jump uh, than it was from push-ups, but I know the push-ups didn't help it. Uh, Valerie Azanoff, who I'm very good friends with and uh, market his Ballistic Striking DVD series, uh, is a former uh, member of Russian Special Forces, KGB trainer, um, taught me uh, the way they do push-ups for maximum benefit. They do one push-up, but it takes them a minute to get it done. Uh, they use special breathing, and I found that to be more advantageous than 50 push-ups damaging my already damaged rotator cuff. Um, but the, the running, my problem with that is running is jarring on the joints, and I'm okay with running a few days a week, but these people that run every day, I think a lot of them are putting stress and damage onto joints in their bodies. And they're also, there's, and this is, I can't go deep into this today, but Western exercise in general builds up so much internal heat, uh, that a lot of, a lot of people from Soviet Union, uh, their exercises were designed not to build up that internal heat because they believe it does damage to the internal organs. I can't give you a pure scientific explanation for it, but I have a belief that they may be right, that they know what they're doing. This is, it's, this is not, you know, communist Russia. This is ancient Soviet or ancient, ancient Russian, um, exercise and tradition and technique for meditation, uh, and, and things like martial arts and things like that, that this is rooted in. So I don't do a lot of the real heavy aerobic stuff. And I know again, somebody say, well, look at your gut. Of course you don't, whatever. Um, but I like to do, I like to work on a heavy bag. I like to punch a heavy bag. I think that's a good overall body workout. I like to do pull-ups and I like to do dips and I like to walk. And I think if you do that and you're getting out and doing all the other things we talk about, you're going to be plenty fit. Uh, I will tell you, you will see the Spirico beer gut drop quite a bit once we move and I'm up, able to walk that mountain every day because uh, you couldn't stop me from doing it because I get so much pleasure out of it. And that's the big thing. If you want to stay physically fit, the best thing you can do is find things that make you active that you actually enjoy doing. And if you do that, you'll do it all the time. Uh, and if it's running for you, fine. Don't let anything I said detract from that. Uh, it's just not my personal um, favorite. I don't like things that are jarring or repetitive to the joints to the point where they cause damage. And I've seen plenty of runners with bad hips and knees in their later years and ankles. And I've seen tons of people in the military with absolutely destroyed shoulders from push-ups. Uh, I cannot shoot a bow with a, with a mechanical release anymore because of the damage to my shoulder. And if you think about drawing a compound bow or a, a long bow, anything, a hunting bow, and if you're shooting Apache style, your arm is simply, your fingers are vertical and your arm is turned vertical. And when you shoot with a release, you turn that hand over. That, I can pull no problem at all with the arm sideways. As soon as I turn it over and go to pull back, it changes the, the position and it causes intense pain. And I, I, you know, I can't shoot with a release. I think you're better off Apache style anyway. But that's what, you know, push-ups do. That's why I'm not a fan of those. But how fit is fit enough? Fit enough to get around, move around, feel good, not suck wind when you're out trying to play with your kids and things like that. That that's that's just not the way to be. Let's go ahead and take another question. It's cool when two come in like that. Hi Jack, this is David from Norcross, Georgia. I've been a longtime listener and I have a question about uh, dehydrating food. 
is it feasible uh, and economical to buy a bunch of uh, frozen uh, food, you know, like from Sam's Club or BJ's, and then to use a dehydrator to dehydrate that food and uh, store it in uh, cans as you do. Uh, so I'd like to hear what you say. And I really enjoy the show. Take care. Not only is it feasible and economical, it's a great idea with an understanding about certain things. Um, one thing you really have to understand about this is that anything that I would say about, you know, genetically modified crops and poor nutritional values and things like that, uh, will apply to food that you buy from a grocery store, whether it's frozen or fresh. Uh, it's grown in the same places. Frozen food actually is remarkably good at retaining nutrients though because it's not processed the way canned food is and it's frozen very very quickly it's one of the best methods other than dehydration of uh, preserving nutrients in your food here's a huge advantage to doing this with uh, with dehydrated food or with uh, frozen foods when you dehydrate most vegetables now there are some that you don't have to do this with like for instance one is uh, peppers peppers do not have to be blanched but most vegetables before you dehydrate them require blanching and that's either done by steam or it's done by being boiled. And this is a very short duration. Most things in the neighborhood of one to three minutes. There's blanching charts out there. You can look up online. Just put in uh, blanching, froze, blanching, blanching vegetables into Google, and you'll find tons of blanching charts uh, for times based on the vegetable type. Well, you have to blanch them to freeze them as well. So that means whenever you go out to the store and you get a bag of uh, snow peas or a bag of corn, uh, or anything else that's required blanching, it's been blanched because the producer blanched it before they put it in the freezer, which means you come home, you cut the bag open, you dump it out into your dehydrator, you stick it in there, you turn it on, and when it's dehydrated, it's done. And it's fully preserved like any other dehydrated item would be, and someone else did some of the work for you. If you go to BJ's or Sam's Club or We Like Costco and you wait for sales and things like that, or even your basic grocery stores, sometimes you can get really great deals on very large amounts of these frozen vegetables. So it can be extremely economical if you don't just go out and buy it tomorrow, but you look for opportunity buys like you should be doing with your storage anyway. So it's a great idea. I learned this from Tammy Gangloff of Dehydrate the Store, who has videos on YouTube about exactly this. And if you go to my YouTube channel and you check out my 5-gallon bucket project, you'll see that some of the items that I made as part of the bucket storage were indeed frozen vegetables that we uh, dehydrated, just to demonstrate that to you. Uh, as far as storing them in cans, I was vacuum sealing them for the bucket, but today, my new method of using FDA uh, um, grade uh, food storage uh, grade cans, which are gold phenolically lined paint cans, is what I would do. Much easier, much quicker, you don't have to worry about a, a, a uh, you know, a lot of times I've had problems with vacuum sealers. Uh, you have to buy really high-end ones to never have any problems, and you can still have some problems. Um, with the can, you open the can, you put the food in the can, you drop a couple O2 absorbers in the can, you close the lid, and done. Uh, and I found and you, you, I use a little P-touch to make labels, stick them on the can, label the item, label the date. And it's, it's easy, and when you're going to use the can again, you pop it open, you use the material that's in the can. When it's ready to be reused, you peel the label off, you stick a new label on it, you put new stuff in it, and it goes to the back of the storage facility. Absolutely outstanding, and there's no reason not to use frozen vegetables to do this with, especially when you get good deals. Some of the things that work really well are potatoes. 
uh, potatoes that are in the little cubed potatoes, and then the hash brown shredded potatoes. Both of those are awesome. Corn is awesome, and it's a great way to do corn because any fresh corn that I grow, I'm eating off the cob. I'm not going to be going through dehydration uh, with, with corn. Not to mention, if you grow corn for corn flour, the type of corn you grow, you just basically let it sit on the cob until it's ready to come off and it's already dehydrated, so you don't need to do that. But So corn, if you want dehydrated corn, great way to do it. Carrots are great, and carrots get really small. Uh, you get four pounds of carrots, and they'll fit into a little bitty Ziploc bag when you're done with them. Uh, all of these things work very well. Again, check out my video, Tammy Gangloss videos. I'll put links to uh, both of them uh, on today's show notes. And, uh, yes, you can do it. One thing to be aware of, though, uh, I have a 9-tray Excalibur dehydrator, and it is a horse. The first time I did this, I maxed it out. I filled it up every tray to the max with frozen vegetables. It worked. It handled it. It, it, it dripped a ton of moisture. Your frozen vegetables are far more moisture-heavy uh, than uh, vegetables out of your garden, even once you've blanched them. So what you might want to do is um, go a little bit lighter, a little bit more space than you would normally use. Or another thing you can do is take your dehydrated, uh, your, your, your frozen vegetables and set them out and allow them to uh, to defrost before you put them in the dehydrator. Because the dehydrator defrosts them fast, but a lot of that moisture comes out of them. Let them defrost sitting on some paper towel or something like that, or in a colander, and let them drain somewhat on their own, because vegetables defrost pretty quickly, and then put them in, and that might help keep that moisture content down as well, and make your dehydration process more efficient. And make sure you dehydrate at low temperatures. I like to dehydrate around 110 degrees. Yes, it takes longer, but I don't cook the food that way, and I don't like... Uh, I don't want to cook food when I dehydrate it. Uh, it just comes out with a better end result. It's worth a few extra hours. It's not like you're pedaling a bicycle to make the dehydrator run. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is a Hawaiian on the forum. I just wanted to talk about how I don't believe the First Amendment protects Terry Jones and the Koran burning. Um, yes, he does have the freedom of speech and assembly, but the First Amendment does not protect people who incite riots. Uh, Reverend Jones is made aware of civil unrest due to his decision and the potential escalation of that unrest and violence, knowing the consequences and still proceeding proves intent. Um, I also think that Reverend Jones could be prosecuted for denying someone else his right to live. Let's say the civil unrest escalates due to his actions. If a soldier or American dies due to this civil unrest provo uh, provoked by Reverend Jones, then Reverend Jones' action denies someone else the right to live. Uh, let me know what you think. Thanks for the show. Bye. Some of you will be surprised by this answer, and some of you will not be surprised at all. Um, but let me say that I completely disagree with this caller. 100% completely disagree with this caller. Before I explain why, I need to tell you what I think about Reverend Terry Jones and his plan to burn Korans. So that's who this guy was, for those who may not know. This is the guy down in Florida that was going to stage a big Koran burning to protest the fact they're going to build a mosque in New York City near Ground Zero. Um, Terry Jones is an idiot. I'll put it this way. Terry Jones is an asshole. And the boy needs his ass kicked. He really does. Because... It's not whether he has the right to do this or not. It's there's, there's things that are not appropriate. And to take something that's sacred that belongs to somebody else and desecrate it is not appropriate. And some of you say, well, they burn our flags. They burn our Bibles. Yes, and we're not like them. 
They also behead their women when they're not obedient. We don't do that either. And this is a small segment of this group of people. Uh, this, this war against a person based on their faith has got to stop. You want to see nonviolent Muslims? Go to Sri Lanka. You know? Go to Malaysia. They're two of the biggest uh, Muslim countries in the world, and they don't have any of this problem going on there. It's not, and all of this hype that you hear on TV about you know, it tries to make put us at war with someone over faith is nonsense. Now there are people uh, that are that are part of that faith, and a large number of people. It's not like it's a tiny handful. It's a small number compared to the whole, but it's millions of these people who are radical, disgusting people, plain and simple that do these types of things, that, that exercise things like honor killings, that would go and riot because somebody drew a cartoon they didn't like. These people should be uh, fought back. But why, so if I feel that way, why do I disagree with the caller? Because I cannot incite a riot under free speech where I say, I want you to go riot. Okay, That's, that's what that means. That's fire in a crowded building. Me making a statement, okay, that you don't like or doing something that you don't like that happens to cause a group of people to be unlawful and right is not fire in a crowded theater. Okay? Because, again, the other thing about fire in a crowded theater, it's okay if there's really a fire. Right? That's the other way to look at this. But here's why we can't allow this type of thinking, and we cannot. If we set precedent that a person can be held accountable because a riot occurs because of something they've said or done that would otherwise be protected by free speech, then any group of people anywhere can shut anybody down by saying, well, we'll riot if they do that. Whether they actually mean to do it or not, they can use it as a means of suppression. So all of a sudden, well, if the Tea Partiers go out there, then the, you know, Super duper, you know, uh, Union Corporation 101A is going to cause a riot in Chicago. Do you see how dangerous that is? Now, again, uh, there was a guy on the radio about two weeks ago when this thing was hot and heavy. He was from way west Texas. And I, God, I wish I could have taped this guy. And, and basically what he said, he, he was talking about it. He says, Haas, let me tell you something. And this guy's name was Glenn. He said, there's been plenty of times in my life where I was angry about something or I wanted to do something or I wanted to say something. And I thought about it and I knew I was in my right to do it. But I thought to myself, Glenn, you know this just ain't appropriate. And what that boy's doing down there in Florida ain't appropriate. Just like those crazy people from Kansas that go out and pick it a person's funeral, it ain't appropriate. They may be within their rights to do it, but we know it's wrong and we should not do it. That's how I feel about this issue. I know I've kicked up a shitstorm today because I've said what I think about this. Remember, you're free to disagree with me. You're not going to convince me one way or the other on this, and if you disagree with me, maybe I'm not going to convince you. But I want you to think about this. I want you to think about that if we would say what this caller said, how it would impact freedom of speech as a whole. And I also want you that are so convinced that it's fine for this guy to do this to think how you would feel if somebody was doing it to something that you held sacred. And just because somebody else does it doesn't mean you're right to turn around and do it to people that had nothing to do with it. Right? This would be like someone comes in and kills your sister. Right? So you go kill somebody else's sister. A sister for a sister. That's the case that's being made here by the people that are proponents of this. It is freaking 
nonsense, and it's not how decent, civilized people conduct themselves. Doesn't mean he doesn't have the legal right to do it, but I'm sure as hell glad he backed off and he didn't do it. I don't know if he ever actually intended to, but I think the boy's a fool, and if I had the opportunity to, I would kick him dead square in his ass hard enough to make his nose bleed. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. My name is Sean. I'm calling from right outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. I just bought me a can solidator from Shelf Alliance, and I was getting ready to fill it up with cans. I was listening to Alex Jones the other day. He was talking about BTA, Bicenol A. And I was uh, kind of concerned. I was wondering if this is something I should be concerned about. Um, is there any? If it is, is there any manufacturers of canned foods that do not put BTA on their cans, and plus, what about water bottles? Are there any water bottles that don't have BPA in it? And plus, what about water storage tanks? Do they put BPA in that? Um, just call in to see if this is something I should be concerned about or not. Thanks. Bye. Well, let's start out with a source here, Alex Jones. Let me say that a lot of what Alex Jones says is absolutely the fact, backable by fact. But then he tends to take the fact and extrapolate and turn the fact into something that it's not really the case. It's not so much that he's wrong here at all. Uh, BPA is part of the lining in cans uh, for most canned food in America. I don't know of anybody specifically canning food and, and, and saying it's BPA-free, but I'll tell you right now, this is a big enough issue with health-conscious individuals that anything that is BPA-free generally is labeled. So your water bottle stuff is easy. Any bottle, bottled water... Uh, that's a BPA-free bottle or container for water that's BPA-free is going to say BPA right on it when you buy it. You'll see it somewhere in the labeling because they take the extra expense to sell that. So they're not going to not tell you. So if it says BPA-free, then you, you know you're, you're there. With canned goods, this is something I've looked at. And the amount of BPA that leaches into even um, very uh, acidic type of, uh, of canned goods is so small that it boggles the mind. I mean, we're talking parts per billion uh, in, in leaching. It's still not good. It's not something you really want in your body, but do you know that most grapes have trace amounts of cyanide in them? And certainly large amounts of cyanide, even a very small amount, a dropper full of cyanide could kill you almost instantly, and yet there's some cyanide in grapes. Most mushrooms, the store-bought white mushrooms, have toxin, mushroom toxin. It's just in such small quantities. If you go out and you start eating um, four pounds of comfrey a day, eventually you'll make yourself very ill, if not kill yourself. Um, but comfrey eaten as part of a diet has had no ill effects on anybody in spite of the bad rap that it's got. BPA is not something like fluoride that is a retained toxin. Your body is capable of getting rid of it. So unless you're living on canned food, this is not a big concern for me. And if my pantry was full uh, with, with canned goods and I had to live on it for a year because I had stored that up, fine, I'm going to eat it. I'll worry about BPA later in that scenario. So I don't overthink this one too much. But earlier caller gave you a solution. Go get some of these cans that I use, these gold line phenolic cans, and take the vegetables that you normally would buy in a can. Get yourself a dehydrator, dehydrate them, drop them in the can. Then you've got your can storage, which I love, by the way, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this. And uh, without a lot of extra work, and there's no BPA. But I'm not going to stop using Wolf Brand Chili, for instance, because of BPA. Love Wolf Brand Chili. But I'm not going to eat canned foods every day either. 
everything in moderation. And I think in moderation, there's nothing to worry about with canned foods. And this is another thing. When we look at a lot of things out there that we say are health risks in our food supply in the United States, and then we look to Europe and Japan, where they're a little bit more enlightened about not poisoning their citizens, it seems, we'll find that there's often bans or labeling requirements. And then we'll look back to the United States and say, well, why don't we do that? I know sometimes we say, you know, why don't we do what Europe does? We don't want to be Europe. But with our food... Right, if Europe sees fit to ban certain genetically modified foods, maybe maybe there's something there. Well, as I've checked into it, I don't know of any developed nation anywhere in the world that currently has outlawed BPA lining in um, canned goods because of the minuscule amounts and because of the research that's been done on it. Um, again, is BPA a toxin? Yes. So is a so is a mushroom that people eat every day. So is what's in a grape that people eat every day. So is the air that we breathe every day. It's the amount of the toxin. Um, I would be more concerned about the mercury level in a can of tuna fish than the BPA level in a can of tuna fish. I'll put it to you that way. And I will still occasionally eat tuna fish, but I'm not going to live on it every day. Makes sense. All right, let's go ahead and take. Uh, I think we got one more question today. Hey, Jack, this is Brian from Mesquite, Texas. Uh, just got a quick question for you. Uh, a few episodes back, you were talking about um, buying a diesel vehicle and, and the storability of stabilized diesel. My question was, when you talk about stabilized diesel, what are you, what are you talking about using to stabilize diesel for long-term storage? Um, thanks a lot for the podcast. Enjoy it. Have a good day. Well, uh, we'll clean up here with an easy one. The product is called Stabil, S-T-A hyphen B-I-L. Stabil, they make a stabilizer for gas and stabilizer for diesel. Um, I used to be a big fan of uh, the, the product for gasoline, and it's still a good product. It's just not as effective as it used to be, thanks to corn-based ethanol and our fuel with federal mandate, and we don't even have the option to get fuel without it anymore. Um, ethanol is corrosive. It also breaks down quickly. It doesn't go through pipelines well. It's got all kinds of problems with it. And one is that it reduces the storage life of gasoline. And even with stabilizer, it's not as good as it used to be. All right, It doesn't go bad in a day or anything like that. But it doesn't have the storage life that it did, let's say, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, so there's there's the product. It's stable. Um, on diesel... Um, I'm getting more and more fond of, of the fact that we own diesel vehicles. Uh, there's just something about them. They perform better. They work better. The fuel lasts longer. Uh, they'll run on other things if they have to. Um, I think diesel's the way to go, and I, I'm sad that, that it's not. I've had some people email me about several cars that came out that were really crappy diesels uh, that, that American makers put out just trying to have a diesel, and their performance is a big part of why. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I, I, I think it's deeper than that. Um, there's plenty of well-run diesel motors throughout the world. If anybody wanted to make a big splash with diesel a long time ago, they could. It really comes down to expense. Building a diesel motor is more expensive than a gas motor. And we live in economies where an economy in the America today where people buy things based on their costs now, not based on their long-term value. If you evaluate two vehicles, and they're identical by all other purposes, uh, a diesel vehicle will cost you about 7 to 8% more today, in some cases 10% or greater, 
more. In some cases, it's 20, on, on some of the bigger, heavier duty trucks, sometimes we're looking at, at, at 20% increase on the price of a vehicle. The longevity and long-term value and reduced depreciation in that vehicle will more than pay for it, but people focus on today's expense versus tomorrow's return. That's what's held diesels back in America. And that's a lesson for everything. When you're buying stuff, always be frugal, never be cheap. The cheap person buys for today's cost. The frugal ver person buys for the total cost of ownership and total value that the asset produces for them. With that, I'll go ahead and wrap up. I'm up installing a new asset at my bug out location, like I said. Probably as you're listening to this, uh, hopefully I've got it assembled and I'm dumping corn into a new deer feeder and maybe I'll be able to take a couple deer this year without paying a lease fee. That would be nice. I know there's some running around up there as long as my uh, neighbor's vacation dogs, as I call them, don't keep running them off on me. Maybe I'll be able to take a couple deer right in the backyard this year. Maybe even throw you a little bit of video on that. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're leaving.